This is the Partnership for the Arts talk show, where we talk art. Greetings, this is Victor Gartner, your host for Where We Talk Art, a podcast produced by the Partnership for the Arts. And today we have a guest, and she is a multimedia artist, and we're going to begin talking to her right after this very brief message. This is Partnership for the Arts. Come join us. As we explore the world of art. You can find us on our Facebook page at Partnership for the Arts Group Talk Show. Or you can find us on our new website at pftatalkshow.org. PFTA Talk Show is recorded at the Visual Arts Center in Punta Gorda, Florida. Hello, we are back. And once again, welcome to Where We Talk Art. And today, our guest is Jerry Megna, a multimedia artist. Welcome, Jerry. How are you doing today? Fine, Victor. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. And I always want to start our show with getting a little background information about our people so that, well, we're not just talking about what you produce, but people get to know a bit about who you are. All right? All right. So where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in Pasadena, California, and I lived in California my whole life, up until four years ago. Right. And I have no idea what Pasadena looks like. Like, is it a a big populous area or or not? It's a suburb of Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. and it is where the Rose Parade is every year. The annual Rose Parade is right down Colorado Boulevard in the heart of Pasadena, and um, it's also where they have the Rose Bowl. So have you seen the Rose Parade? I haven't gone to the Rose Bowl because I'm not a sports person, but I have seen the parade every year as a child because my grandparents lived a block off of the parade route. Wow. And our parents would drag us out around 3 o'clock in the morning in our pajamas and line up chairs and blankets. in the morning? Yeah, so that we could get okay. a spot to watch the Rose Parade every year for yeah. years. On TV, they always say that these floats are made out of real flowers. They are. And they spend weeks and weeks. They they gather people up, volunteers. Um, in fact, I think my sister volunteered one year. And they're all in these little capsules that have water in them. Every individual flower right. is in a capsule and then put on the float. And they're amazing to look at especially close up. And then they park them after the parade and you can actually walk and take photos of them. And it's pretty well, interesting. That is very cool. Well, when you were in Pasadena, uh, you also went to high school there. Yes. So at that point of your uh, academic career, did you have any interest in art? And were you taking art classes? Well, I went to private school. So for the first nine years of my life, I was in a parochial school. And they didn't offer a lot of art, but I had an interest in it. And when I started high school, I spent the last three years of high school in a public school. And that is when I started doing some art, some artwork. I took, you know, a few classes. We did copper enamel. I remember we made castings and made rings one time, wax castings. I had an interest early on, though, as a child. It's just that I didn't pursue anything, really. 
until okay. high school and then after high school. Well, as you were growing up, before you start taking these, these classes in public school, did you ever have any encouragement from friends or family that said, geez, you ought to do dancing or, or try theater or anything, you know, anything that was creative or expressive? Musical instruments, yes, because my entire family is musical. So my brother has been is a recorded artist. He writes and sings and plays guitar. My mother was in Sweet Adelines, which is a four-part women's harmony for 35 years, and that's international competitions. Actually, both my sisters were in theater. My grandfather was a great pianist. My grandmother was a pianist. We were encouraged to learn a musical instrument. So when I was younger, I played accordion and piano, and then I self-taught myself guitar when I got into my teens. And I sang with a little local folk music group. I know you like to sing. Yes. And, and you've been singing like in local theater yeah. events. And uh, you also do some duo singing with Rick. Yeah. All right. So when did you decide that uh, you had a voice that was good enough that you could stand on a stage and, and sing in front of people? Believe it or not, it was karaoke. <laughs> oh, no, not the infamous karaoke. <laughs> because we spent our summers on Catalina Island, which uh -huh. is off the coast of Los Angeles. And mm -hmm. my grandfather had houses on the island, and we would spend the whole three months there. And when we got older, old enough to get into the bars... They had two or three bars on the island that did karaoke, and my whole family uh, sings pretty much. So when we would go to karaoke on the island, they called us the Partridge family. Ah. And we'd only be there in the summer, right. but I had cousins that lived on the island year-round, so they would call us the Partridge family because the parents sang, the kids sang, the kids' kids sang. So um, that's kind of my first real experience of singing in front of a lot of people mm -hmm. and when you say a lot of people like how big of an audience well, are you talking about you probably in these bars you know they pack them in a couple hundred people so for me that was a lot yeah, of people and then you have people they have the doors open so people are standing yes. out on the street listening mm -hmm. as well and I was scared to death the first couple times that I sang. But then I got into it, and I bought a professional system, and I actually did um, karaoke in the San Francisco area for about 20-some-odd years at different so venues. So you were the person who was hosting? I hosted the karaoke. Oh, all right. In the community where you live, I understand that there's a weekly karaoke Yes, we have a weekly karaoke, and um, then there's other venues. We kind of travel around and go to a couple other venues mm -hmm. in the area. And like you said, I belong to a duo called Jericho. And so we sing mostly in our community, but we have sung in some of the other communities as well. All right. Now, I have kind of a negative uh, experience with karaoke. I've only gone a couple of times, only a couple of times. And I would say that during the hour or so that I would was there each time, there'd be like maybe two singers that were really good singers thinking like, what is this person doing in karaoke? They should be in some kind of a group somewhere. You know, they're really good singers. And a lot of people seem to not even know what key they're in. 
you know, they're they're just way off from from the, from the key, and, and that drives me crazy. That just drives me crazy. I I can't handle people not singing in two. Unfortunately, that's part of karaoke because karaoke is basically basically amateur hour. Oh sure. Um, but there are places where I go where there are a lot of good singers, and then there are places where there's maybe, like you said, a handful of good singers, and you have to sit for three hours and and listen <laughs> to maybe three good singers. So it can be torturous. <laughs> But the whole idea is people, just like with art, there's so many degrees and levels of expertise. Sure. And so you don't want to discourage people who enjoy, who find a pleasure in, in singing. Some of them have no idea that they're off key and that they're about a half of a, you know, step behind the actual yes. music. Yes. and. But they're having fun, and it's an outlet for them. And so the idea is just to let people get up there and sing, whether they can time. sing or not, and have a good time. Yes. you know, And that's why drinks come in handy. <laughs> the more we drink, the, the better, better they, they sound. sound. Yes. And I said, the more people that get courage. <laughs> I can get up there, hold my beer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Now, somewhere along the line, you said that you started really pursuing art. So high school was maybe the gateway for you to get into art. Mm -hmm. So what happened after high school? So after high school, uh, of course, we were encouraged to go to college. Uh, Now, I was one of these people that spent half of high school probably at the beach. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) I was not studious. And I barely made it out of high school because I didn't have an interest in a lot of what they were trying to teach me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I enrolled in, uh, I wanted, I decided I was going to be an art major. And right. so I enrolled in classes at Pasadena City College. I went to go to my first class. I couldn't find the classroom. I turned around, I left, and I never went back. And that was the end of that. And then I started working. But I was working at an art at an art store, an art right. supply store. Mm-hmm. So it gave me an opportunity to make, I helped do displays and make samples and stuff like that. So it was giving me my art kind of um, enjoyment, but without having to you know, go to go to college. So I really have no official art background. All right. Well, I would say that there are a lot of people who have great artistic abilities that never formally studied art, just as there are great musicians and songwriters who have never had formal training in music or music theory and can't even read music. But the the musicality is outstanding. I don't read music, yeah. I don't read music, but I know how to sing in the pocket. I know how to sing with the music, mm-hmm. and not behind it or not in front of it. Can and you that's sing harmony? Like 
I, I love to sing harmony. Sing, I grew up singing harmony. You've got a good ear. Oh, sure. Your mother was in. Yeah, uh, my mother was in the four part harmony, and I harmonized with my sister. I have my dad has recordings of my sister and I singing songs from the Disney movies, mm-hmm. and uh, I think we were probably about four years old. Four, she was a couple years younger than me, so we really started singing young, and so the family kind of sang together, and I learned harmony really early on. Right. So, but with no formal training there either. Okay, now I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to, um, I'm going to say several months ago. Well, I wouldn't say several months ago. It was probably less than that, where there was um, a big art show at Maple Leaf Golf and Country Club, and then people brought their artwork. And you had quite a display of your work out there. I saw... It wasn't just watercolor. It wasn't just uh, alcohol inks. It was a variety of things. So, so tell our listeners what mediums you are working in right now. So my real passion right now is alcohol ink on ceramic tile. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a lot of my alcohol ink, but I also help. I co-teach classes at Maple Leaf. Um, they're called Paint and Sip, and they're acrylic art. And it's uh, something that people with no background in art and no experience can do within a few hours and have a finished product to take home. So I had some acrylics. And then I'm also, I make jewelry. So I had jewelry for sale as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the my main forms of art right now. I've dabbled in everything that you can think of. Macrame, I've done gourd art before. Um, I have done uh, other forms of art as far as not just, I've done multimedia and then I've, I've started dabbling with, um, polymer clay. So I've experienced some polymer clay stuff. It's real interesting and it's not as easy as it looks, but it's an interesting form. But my real passion right now is with the alcohol ink and I do help. I co-teach as well. My sister just did a two-day workshop. She might have been in that group. She probably was because we only did it the one uh, class this year. How well does uh, Alcohol Inc. sell? It sells very well um, because it's it's a loose medium, which is probably the appeal for me. I'm not a realist. I'm more a surrealist or fantasy art or impressionist, and that kind of caters to that type of style. It sells very well. I have I have a friend that also does alcohol ink, and she's got a lot of stuff that she sells. You know, I don't remember the name of it, but she does sell a lot of her art, and she yeah. sells a lot of it in her hometown as well. And um, I know that that it's a form of art that people are very attracted to. Mm-hmm. My, my biggest sellers are... Uh, I sell at a gallery that's in um, Port Charlotte, and it's called Waves of Light. It's on King's Highway, and they're a metaphysical store. So yes, they're near that Peter's Restaurant. Peter's Restaurant, that's right. And so uh, what sells there are the owls, uh, crows. Those are spirit animals. Right. Um, I do a lot of mermaids. I do uh, whales. Um, the nautical and the beachy stuff sells very well. 
So it, it does sell better, in my opinion, than the acrylics mm -hmm. because it's a different form and it has a totally different look to it. All right. So if people want to see your work, they need to go to... Waves of Light. Waves of Light on Kings Highway in Punta Gorda. That's right. No, Port Charlotte, excuse me. <laughs> That's right. Port, Port Charlotte. Charlotte. Yes. Well, you know, this is really a good time, Jerry, for us to take a short break. So, listeners... Stay by because in a little while, you're going to talk to Jerry about a horrific incident that wiped out her town where she lived in California. We'll be right back. Hi, my name is Frank DiDemizio, and I love to listen to the podcast Where We Talk Art. We are back, and once again, you are listening to Where We Talk Art. This is your host, Victor Gartner, and we've been talking to my guest, Jerry Megna, who is a multimedia artist. And as before we took the break, I said that we were going to talk about her horrific experience about losing her home in California. So, Jerry, take us back to that time and, and explain to us where you lived and its uh, ironic name. <laughs> It is Paradise, California, and I had been living in near the San Francisco area for quite a while, and I bought a second home up in Paradise, which is in the mountains. It's about 2,500 elevation, and it's above the town called Chico, which is a college town in California that is northeast of Sacramento, the capital. And eventually decided that I loved it so much, I moved to Paradise full-time. And I lived there for about 12 years. And in November of 2018, woke up around 7, 30, 8 o'clock in the morning to the smell of smoke and uh, went outside and the skies were quite dark. And my neighbor was out in the street and said that we had a call to evacuate. So I called my mother because my mother was... 89 and also lived in paradise and started making my way over to help her because she said she couldn't get her cat into a cat box in order to take him. So I started trying to make my way over to pick her up, which was three miles from where I lived. And I made it, I was probably within two blocks, three blocks of her and could not go any further. The traffic was just gridlocked. The sky was completely black. On the way over, there were bushes already burning. And from what I heard, the bushes at the end of my mom's driveway were already on fire. So, oh so I had to change direction and start heading back. I managed to get a hold of her, and she said her neighbor was going to direct her, you know, out to how to get out. So that was um, quite the ordeal because the, basically the town burned down in probably 10, 11 hours. Uh, at one point, they said the fire was moving at about 10 football fields a minute. A minute? Yeah. 
And it, that it, it must have been very, very windy. Very windy. What happens is that the fire itself creates extra wind, and it was already windy, which yeah. is one of the reasons the fire because reached the town of Paradise. Yeah. So uh, it started at the base of a canyon. Paradise is at the top of a hill, and on both sides of you, you have canyons. And it started at the base of the canyon. It managed, because of the winds, to work its way up into Paradise. And once it started burning... It just fueled itself. And apparently it got up to about 3,000 degrees. 3,000 degrees. Yeah. So it really just obliterated everything. It's just going to ignite anything instantly. Yes, everything. I mean, that temperature, it's like putting a torch to something. Yeah. So basically we had three routes to get out of paradise. And they were directing people to different routes depending on where you were coming in. But what had happened was they had to use every single lane as an exit lane. Yes. So uh, I was unable to get back to my house to get. I had two dogs, and because unfortunately, back to your house was I couldn't. In, but everything was everything really was coming out. out, and I said, "Can I go that way?" And they said, "Nope, you have to go this way." Oh, no. They just directed you in one direction, and and basically, it took five hours to go eleven miles. Wow. Because you were stuck, you had the entire town trying to get out, and with only two or three streets, and all the side streets were coming into those two or three streets. But the so, fire's raging at the same time you're in traffic. It's raging, so ba- basically... What was going through was, your mind? Basically, whether I was going to get out alive. and That's exactly what I would think. Yeah, because uh, we had fire basically burning on both sides of the road. So the road didn't have fire, obviously, because uh, it was cement, but you had 25-foot pine trees right beside the road that were on fire. And then you were hearing explosions because people were deserting their cars and trying to walk out or run out. And so gas tanks were exploding. Some people didn't have uh, regular gas. They had propane. Propane, yes. So propane tanks were exploding. So it was kind of like just a war zone, and you're just stuck. You can't go forward. You can't go backward. You you know, you're, you can only move if the car in front of you moves. Was, was and, there any sense? Well, you, there must have been some sense of panic because you said people would leave their cars and start running out. They thinking, were trying to run out. I, I, don't, I don't know what I would do. I guess maybe I would be tempted to run, but then... There's, there's not this steel body around you that can protect you from some flames yeah. if they come close. Yeah, and unfortunately, I saw, you know, people walking with dogs on leashes and kids in strollers oh trying to walk out of this inferno. Nice. And they did lose 85 people uh, in the fire. And about 40,000, 50,000 people lost their homes. Because it, it basically did burn the entire town down. There were very few buildings that were left standing. And those buildings were cement buildings. Mm. But anything that wasn't made of cement, if the house was made out of wood, uh, when you went back, you could see chimneys, you know, that were made out of brick. But then nothing else but just a chimney sitting there. So right. it was um, it was quite the ordeal. And it was a life changer because... That was where I lived, and everything I owned was in that house and in that garage, and basically nothing, nothing survived. So I walked out with the clothes on my back and my purse, because I had a, per- I had at least a phone. Right. 
and a credit card, I hope. Yeah, yeah, wallet and a phone and my yeah. purse, that was it. And the same with my mom. And we we didn't know if she had made it out alive because she had no cell phone. Oh. And my mom doesn't drive on anything but city streets. And so they directed her down the hill where there's freeways and everything in Chico. And she had no way to contact anybody. Finally, my mom stopped at a park and asked somebody to use their phone. So at least we knew she was alive. But it took her another two hours to go a couple miles across town to get to where I was. Mm -hmm. And we were going to stay the night at a friend's house, which was kind of near the border of where the paradise comes down the hill to Chico. And then they had a, a possible evacuation. So we had to leave there as well afterwards. So we ended up with another friend that lived further out of town and spent, I think, about a week there while we were waiting to see whether our houses were still standing. Because at that time, you're watching the news and you're seeing the devastation, but you're not, you don't really know, did my house survive? Exactly. Is my house gone? So how was the decision made? Or what was the criteria for uh, authorities deciding that it was okay for people to go back and check their neighborhoods? It took a month and a half before they let people back up. The fire was in uh, November, and it was uh, the very end of December, uh, almost January, before they let people back up. What they did was they they blocked off all the roads up there. I'm sure they didn't um, want anybody. Because of looting and stuff, looting, even right. though there was quite a bit of looting. People found their way up or were already up above where Paradise was and then came down the mountain to loot people. It took about a month, at least a month, before they gave us the okay to go back. And mm. so when I went back up, I went back with eight family members and lots of shovels and wheelbarrows and sifters. And we sifted through the rubble looking for coins because I was a coin dealer for 10 years. So I had uh, boxes and boxes of foreign coins dating back to the 1800s in pristine condition. And so that's what you we were, were looking for. You were a foreign coin <laughs> dealer. Yes. Well, that's... That, oh, okay, that's another whole story. I guess we're going to have to talk about that sometime. All right. So... So that's what we were looking for. We were looking for coins. We, I had gold coins. I had silver bars. And we found silver bars... Some of them were melted together in big clumps, and others mm -hmm. were perfect, just like perfect, just a little charred. Okay. But no gold. We it found vaporized. no gold. It vaporized because gold burns off at a lower temperature than 3,000. So wow. the silver survived. We found uh, jewelry boxes that I know I had, like, diamond rings in, and the diamond was in the tin, and the gold was gone. That's amazing. So it just evaporated. Evaporated inside a <laughs> container yeah. of some sort. Yeah. You would think that maybe there'd be a puddle. Yeah, that's what I thought. I would find little gold buttons or something, but we found no gold, just just silver. But we sifted. I knew where my coin boxes were, and we did come out with a box of completely charred coins, 
And the only value they'll have, of course, would be uh, metal value. Scrap metal value. So we took everything that we found, and it has to be assayed and mm-hmm. determined whether it's right. a silver coin or, or not. Because obviously there's no gold coins, but... Wow. Because also I had a... I had a crafting room, a 200-square-foot crafting room, because I did quilting as well Mm -hmm. and scrapbooking and card making and the jewelry. So I came up with about a $400,000 value for all my stuff because I had a two-car garage that was filled, and I collected antiques. So my house was full of antiques as well, vintage dolls, that's another thing that I was really into was photography. And so, and I had traveled extensively all over the world. And you had photography equipment? All my photo equipment and just thousands and thousands and thousands of photographs from different trips that I had taken around the world. So all of that was up in smoke. So really it's, and I had a lot of um, family memorabilia, Lots of family memorabilia. Mm. I had just gotten a bunch of stuff that my dad started giving away, stuff that had belonged to my grandparents, and all that was gone. Um, My grandfather was a published photographer. In fact, he beat Ansel Adams out in a contest once of black and white photography of Muir Woods. Um, So he was published. He's got photos uh, in the City Hall in San Francisco. He photographed the building of the um, Golden Gate Bridge, and he photographed the World's Fair in San Francisco. And so I had a lot of that memorabilia also. That, And that's not replaceable, you know. No, it isn't. Basically, though, when we went back, nothing survived. Uh, we, we didn't find beads. We didn't find... Anything from my grandmother's sewing machine, we found just the metal piece of the Singer sewing machine, but everything else was gone. In that kind of a situation, does insurance cover these things? My ins- my house insurance did not cover those things. It, it it I got a very minimal value for it from my insurance. It covered my house, but there's a a lawsuit against the gas and electric company. Pacific Gas and Electric in California. And actually, it's a um, lawsuit that includes four or five major fires that they claimed uh, responsibility for. Okay, why are they responsible? Because this particular fire, they had a transformer that had been sparking. They knew there were going to be high winds. They were sending warnings that they might turn your electricity off due to high winds um, and the danger of fire. And they didn't fix it before this fire happened. So they didn't shut off the power either. They didn't shut off the power. So that's what started this whole thing. And I'm not sure about what the other fires were started from, but they did claim responsibility for for some other major, major fires in California. So they're paying out billions and billions of dollars. So most of the money that I've gotten has come from the lawsuit. I lost my entire lifetime of photographs, and I was an avid photographer. But your your love for some of these things that you were involved in just a few years ago, 
I mean, have you had to like say, okay, that pardon the expression, that bridge is burned behind me, and I, I'm not going yeah. back? Or are you still looking at saying, I'm still very interested in foreign coins. I'm still very interested in in pursuing photography. Where, where do you? I I am still. I'm involved in uh, the photography club, also where I live in my community, um, because that's something that's kind of in my blood. And I'm I am still interested in a lot of you know what I lost. So I'm making new memories, obviously. Obviously, but uh, it, I started from scratch. You know, basically. Started with nothing. <laughs> did, did you go through a period of, like, shock or mourning? Yeah. PTSD is what they call it. And really? almost everybody that went through that fire had some form of PTSD because uh, of the fact that you didn't know if you were going to get out alive, basically. So there was that whole period of time when you were just hoping to get out. Um, and then when you did get out, it was that whole morning period of losing everything you owned your whole lifetime, you know. Mm-hmm. Imagine even my mom at 87 losing her whole life worth of photos and things from her parents. And so really, it, yeah, you definitely go through a phase where you are mourning your losses. But I'm a glass half full kind mm-hmm. of person. So you... One door closes and another one opens, and I'm finding myself in Florida now in a completely different environment, but I honestly feel that I'm better off now than I was before the fire in a lot of ways. Can can you elaborate on that a little bit? (laughs) Well, first of all, I... I, like I said, I was a collector. So I collected spoons, thimbles, shot glasses, uh, cigar labels, postcards, um, paper money, coins. So I had massive, massive amounts of collections. A lot of them sat in boxes in my garage. I didn't enjoy them, but I collected them. And I realized when I lost everything that... That's not really what's the most important thing in life. When you go through something like that, you realize that what's important is you have your life and you have your family and you have your friends. And that's forever. Your materialistic possessions are temporal. Mm -hmm. You're not going to take them with you. So you you can collect as much as you want and derive what pleasure you do get out of it. But in the end, I kind of felt like it was house cleaning. Mm-hmm. And as as devastating as it was, it was a burden to me to have so much. Because I had just retired four months before the fire. Just retired. And I was starting to go through everything in my garage and starting to try to get rid of stuff. And it was, and it was um, overwhelming. It was that. overwhelming. I would open the garage door and look and go, oh, my, shut it and well, go back in the house. Heck of a way to clean house. <laughs> yeah. It's one. It's one heck of a way to clean house, but it, it's it was gave me a fresh start. You yes. know, I started over from scratch, but I I feel like it was a lesson learned in a lot of ways and showed me what's important in life and how little really that stuff really matters. 
the memories are all, all are still there. So mm-hmm. that's what's important. I don't have the photographs, but right. I remember all the places that I traveled. And, and like you say, you have to take a look at what's really important and what's really yeah. valuable. Yeah. And possessions really aren't very valuable no. in the long run. They're not, no. Experiences are more valuable to me now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd rather have that money. Yeah, experiences. Tra- I love to travel. I've traveled my whole life. I traveled when I did coins because I sold foreign coins. But I also traveled for pleasure. And I still do a lot of traveling. And that, to me, is worth a lot more than having a lot of stuff sitting in a garage or on a shelf collecting dust. Sure. I agree 100%. So. Well, Jerry, we are running out of time. Okie doke. And we have had an interesting talk. And listeners, if you like this podcast, you know, don't be afraid to go to Where We Talk Art and our Facebook or go to Where We Talk Art on SoundCloud, Apple Music, a variety of different places. Jerry, thank you so much for coming. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Victor. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. And listeners, as I often tell you, you know, your neighborhood, I bet, has an art center somewhere that's run by volunteers and it's a nonprofit organization. Go visit. See if you can become part of that, that movement of art. Art is an expression of who we are and what we are. Until next time, be well. Thanks for listening to the Partnership for the Arts talk show. 